Hey, thanks for joining us. We're starting a new podcast entitled On Call with Doc J. I'm obviously not Tanya Merrigan, but I am here to walk you through some of the difficult decisions, situations, and challenges we're facing with the COVID pandemic. My name is Chris Jensen, and I proudly serve as one of the medical advisors for Blue Valley. It is our intent in Blue Valley to be transparent, and have community discussions. This is the only way we can navigate this process. And so we've had a lot of great questions from our parents, students, and staff regarding the COVID pandemic. And these questions are important and they're pertinent. And we wanted to hit them head on and share our results with you. So you'll see over the next few weeks that we'll be inviting local and regional experts uh, that bring a lot of insight and knowledge to the COVID pandemic in several areas. And we'll focus on some of these necessary topics. Our goal is to work through them with you, to keep you informed, to let you know what Blue Valley is doing, and how we're networking with healthcare professionals around the United States to try and deliver the best school experience we can this year. Our first topic will deal with a very relevant situation, and that is the reality that COVID numbers and cases within schools are on the rise. We see this locally, we see it across the United States, and there's a lot of theories as to why. Certainly as a parent myself, my two girls attending school, I worry about this. Why do we see these numbers increasing and are we doing the right things to try and limit the numbers? As a physician, it also strikes my attention. So today we're gonna work through this process and take a look at some of the possibilities as to why we're seeing these numbers jump, what's going on in our community and what we can do about it. We're fortunate to spend some time with an accomplished and very dedicated physician in our midst with us today, Dr. Jennifer Schuster. Dr. Schuster is an infectious disease specialist at Children's Mercy Hospital and Clinics and has been gracious enough to advise several of the health departments around KC Metro. She also deals with a lot of complicated questions from school districts all over Kansas and Missouri, and she does this very willingly on top of all her patient care responsibilities. I can assure you, knowing her for several months and gaining a lot of advice from her, she truly wants what's best for kids as well as our community, and I feel very honored to spend some time with Dr. Schuster and explore this issue today. So, Dr. Schuster, we have about 12 minutes. I'm confident we can solve this issue, <laughs> but I just want to jump in directly and deal with the elephant in the room. Why do you think we might be seeing a substantial spike in COVID-19 cases in our schools? Hey, Chris. Well, thanks for having me today. I, um, I count myself lucky to have been able to work with you and the whole Blue Valley team over the last couple of months. Um, it's been really, really great. So I think you asked the perfect question. So why are we seeing an increase in cases in our schools? Well, it's because we're seeing an increase in cases in our community. So we know that over the last couple of months, we've seen a drastic increase in COVID-19 cases in the KC metro area on both sides of the state. And as we see an increase in cases in the community, we'll see an increase in cases in the schools as well. Now, I think what's important to note, and I suspect we're gonna talk a little bit about this later, is although we're seeing increased cases in schools, what we have been really lucky is that we are not seeing significantly increased transmission in schools. And so those are two really different things, uh, which I know that you have spent a lot of time thinking about. But the increased number of cases in children and in schools simply reflect the fact that we are seeing an increased number of cases in our community. Okay. I appreciate you highlighting that. And, and yeah, I mean, as, as we talk about how community spills into schools, do you have any comments or thoughts from your perspective as to how masks and social distancing in school have been performing? Do you, do you glean any uh, feedback from the health departments or patient levels? 
So I think actually the best feedback that we've gotten on transmission in the schools is from our schools. So that's from superintendents, that's from school principals, that's from teachers, that's even from parents who provide us with feedback about what's going on in the schools. And then also, as you mentioned, a number of our health departments who have worked really, really closely with the schools uh, to better understand what's going on with transmission. So what we know is that most of the schools in our area have done a phenomenal job of implementing risk mitigation strategies. And there are a number of those, as many of the parents who are listening know about. Those are things like masking, increasing physical distancing, hand hygiene, cleaning, changes in ventilation. All of these things decrease the risk of one person transmitting the virus to another person. And what's amazing about schools is these teachers, school staff, children are all abiding by and following these risk mitigation strategies. And we know that these work. You know, I'm so excited because on last Friday, the CDC published their recent report that highlighted uh, masking in Kansas, which many people may have seen. And so what the CDC published was those counties in Kansas who had mask mandates had a decreased incidence of COVID-19 cases. And those counties that did not implement a mask mandate during this time period had an increase in cases. And that's great because that features our very own state really moving the needle forward and highlighting science and that our risk mitigation strategies work. And so this in, con in conjunction with the data that we have from Missouri that was published earlier in the summer, so where the two hairdressers were masked, all of their clientele were masked and they exposed a number of people while they were sick with COVID-19 and no one got infected, really highlights the importance of universal masking. And I think that it is so cool that both Kansas and Missouri have been on the national stage to highlight this. And I think that that is really what our schools are doing as well. They are successfully implementing these strategies that we know work. You know, we've asked our school staff, teachers, superintendents, principals, uh, custodial staff, all these people to basically take on a medical role, things that they've never done before. Our school nurses have, but many of the times the rest of our staff haven't. And so they have implemented these risk mitigation strategies. Um, you know, I heard a, a school nurse refer to this the other day is this is now a safety issue. And I think that that's the perfect way of looking at this. We're looking at this like safety issues. So while you don't run around with your shoes untied, you don't run around in school without a mask. And it turns out that those things are highly effective at uh, preventing the transmission of COVID-19 in schools. Yeah, and along those lines, um, it was actually really reassuring for us right about the same time that the CDC published that regarding mass mandate data. Um, we had a conversation with Johnson County Department of Health and when you look at the six school districts um, feature around Johnson County, in terms of in-school definite transmission amongst those school districts, amongst the all six, when you look at them additively, it was still less than 15. And so obviously there have been a lot of students identified to be positive, but as far as one kid transferring to another, less than 15. So I think that gives us a lot of hope. Um, if it's okay with you, Jen, I want to roll back the clock and talk about kids and their ability to transmit virus. And I know that's a tough question to answer because we're still learning a lot, but I kind of wanted to, if it's okay, look at what we learned way back in the spring of 2020 from the South Korean study 
and then we'll jump to now to see how maybe it's evolved or stayed the same in your opinion. But can you take us back to that initial information from South Korea? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there was a study that was published um, over the summer, I believe. Now my COVID timeline gets a little blurry. I think <laughs> probably like most people's. Um, and so this was a huge epidemiologic study from South Korea that identified um, patients of all different ages who were infected with COVID-19 and then did contact tracing. And at the time, South Korea had a very robust contact tracing system. So they were able to identify the person who was positive and then reach out to everybody who was at risk, uh, who would come into contact with them and then do testing and assess whether they were subsequently found to have COVID-19. And so what the researchers found was that children who were less than 10 years of age seemed to transmit the virus at a lower rate than uh, older teenagers and adults. And that was really only looking at household contact. We know people who are infected are most likely to transmit to people in the house. And that makes sense, right? We spend a lot of time together. Sure. We're generally not masked in our house. We're sleeping in our house. We're eating. We're doing some of these more higher risk activities and spending a lot of time. So in this study, kids who are under the age of 10 look like they have lower rates of household transmission than our teenagers and adolescents. Now, the one thing that um, isn't talked about a lot in the study, but I think is really important to highlight, is that these researchers split their um, analysis between household contacts and non-household contacts. So they also looked to see, you know, of these different age people who were positive for COVID-19, what was the percentage that they infected outside of the house? Now, it's also important to note that during that time, South Korea was doing an excellent job of risk mitigation strategies. So distancing, masking, all those things that everybody's been hearing about for some time. And outside the house, the rates of infection were really low. The, the secondary attack rate was about 1% for all household contacts. But inside the house, it did look like kids who were less than age 10 transmitted less than our older teenagers and adolescents. Yeah, I think that's still a powerful study because it gives you insight to um, how we can limit community spread if everyone chips in and things are done right. And it also gives us a little window into, into the pediatric transmission. I want to jump forward, as I alluded to, and, you know, I'm perhaps oversimplifying this, but in my mind, we're kind of testing two types of kids, those that appear ill and those that do not. And when I mention that is obviously kids who appear sick that reach out to their pediatrician or go through a drive through or urgent care. Um, are being tested and we see a, a certain positivity rate that fluctuates, right? Uh, as opposed to kids who might be, um, might be screened, let's say, for an elective surgery. And so those kids have been harbored at their homes and parents have been careful with them and whatnot. But, but what I'm getting at is um, I'm trying to figure out if when we look across a classroom, pretend I'm a teacher, and I see sick kids, they, their percent chance of having COVID would expect it to be higher than kids that are not sick. But I think some people sometimes worry about the, the children that are sitting in a classroom that do not appear ill. And while no one has access to magic numbers to know what that asymptomatic carrier rate might be, do you have any insight as to what we're seeing in these two groups? Is there a big difference between the percent positive and kids who appear ill and kids who do not? And whatever insight you can lend on that, I think we'd all be grateful. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. So I think um, I'm going to start because I think that there's actually three groups to talk about. Um, so the first is, I didn't mean to throw you for a loop, Chris. So the first group are the symptomatic kids, which I think you're exactly right. 
you know, right now, as of towards the end of November, we are not seeing many of the winter respiratory viruses that we are typically, we would typically be seeing. So we're not seeing RSV, we're not seeing influenza, we're not seeing any, um, we're seeing very few of these other winter respiratory viruses. So what that means is if you have a child who's sick with cough, runny nose, congestion, fever, all the usual respiratory symptoms, it is likely that they are going to have COVID-19, particularly because of the rates in our community, because right now we're just not seeing those other viruses. So I, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head with that one. So if you have a sick child, that is absolutely going to be one of the first things that we worry about right now. And the way that we prevent transmission is that those kids are at home. They are not going to school when they're sick. So even if they haven't been tested yet, we are keeping those children at home. These are, you know, I say this a lot, Chris, you've heard me say this before, the days of giving your child Tylenol and then sending them to school uh, because we are all working parents, those days are gone now. Um, and I say that as a parent and an infectious disease doctor. So um, I think, you know, Getting to that point, we know that right now, if a child has, has respiratory symptoms or fever, given what's going on in our community, um, the most likely thing that they have as of right now is going to be COVID-19. Now, the second group is a little bit more difficult, and this is why I say that I think that there's really three groups. So the first group, you're right, they're asymptomatic. And so these are kids who are asymptomatic, and perhaps they are getting tested because they need to have surgery, as you said, pre-procedurally. The second group, which maybe is the 2B group or the third group, are the kids who are asymptomatic but are actually exposed. And sure. so they're falling within a window where they may um, end up getting symptoms, they may be infected, and they may never have symptoms, and we just don't know. Now, the asymptomatic kids who have not been, ex been exposed, we know that the rates overall are low in those kids. Now, the problem comes in is when our community rates are so high like they are now, we don't always know if the people that we are around are sick or not. We've known from, you know, for months now that you can spread this virus and you can transmit even when you feel well. And so this makes it harder to identify who is asymptomatic but exposed. And so some of those kids who are asymptomatic exposed, who are much more likely to be positive than our true asymptomatic kids, probably not as likely to be positive as our symptomatic children. They really fall somewhere in the middle, but they may be positive. And we know that kids who are asymptomatic and known to be exposed, those kids are not in school. Those kids are in quarantine, right? Sure. That's the whole reason that they stay at home uh, for 14 days after their last exposure is so that they can't spread that virus in case they do get sick. The problem then becomes though, when our community rates are so high Sometimes it's just hard to know whether you are truly exposed because somebody, the person that you may have been around may have been feeling fine and they may not have gotten tested, but they can absolutely transmit the virus. And that makes that asymptomatic piece really, really hard. Now, the reason that these school strategies are working in terms of transmission, so kind of the original question that you were getting to, so teachers in the classroom and looking out at the students who are all asymptomatic because our symptomatic children are not in school, as we now know, the children who are, who are known to be asymptomatic exposed, they're not in school either. But we know that there may be some children who just don't know that they're exposed, and that is the whole reason that we put our risk mitigation strategies in place. 
And so that is the reason that we are masking everybody in case one of those children happens to be at school. And wearing a face covering, distancing, all of those things decrease their risk of transmission. Yeah. And, and I take a lot away from what you just said there. And one of the things that I think I want to highlight and, and jump in to make sure I do this correctly is in that asymptomatic exposed group, what we're doing in schools is in case those kids are about to develop symptoms and don't know it, by the masking, the distancing, and the school mitigation, we're limiting the spread. But really, the other half of that, that dynamic is if the community rate is lower, then the probability of that kid developing code is also lower. And, and, that, and that's how I see it, if you agree. Absolutely. I, that is absolutely correct. So as our community rates rise, those asymptomatic exposed kids will also increase in number as well. This really goes back to that you can transmit the virus when you feel well, when you do not feel sick. And so going into the Thanksgiving holiday, this is really important as we all try and figure out what our Thanksgiving plans look like. Um, I know that I would love to see my family who lives in Georgia this Thanksgiving, and we will be seeing each other via Zoom because we just don't know. We don't know um, who is asymptomatic and infected versus people who are asymptomatic and uninfected. That's, we can't tell. And having a test beforehand doesn't necessarily, that tells you what you are at the moment, but it doesn't tell you what you will be the following week during Thanksgiving. And so right. that's what really highlights, you know, even if you are feeling fine and, um, you know, have no symptoms, the importance of continuing to uh, implement all these mitigation strategies. I'd like to wrap this up as we look to the future. Um, you have been a huge community advocate, and um, I know all the school districts appreciate the advice that you in particular have lended and Children's Mercy at large has bent over backwards to help schools. And so we appreciate that. But um, I'm going to ask one of those what if questions, but if funding and logistics would allow, where would you like to see in your magical world of rainbows and unicorns, Dr. Schuster, where would you like to see prevention and care evolve to if we had the funding and the logistics to do it? Um, do I get a unicorn with this question? If you answer it right, sure. Yeah. If you answer it right. <laughs> so, you know, I think, um, I think we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel with all the vaccine news that um, is coming out. I think that we can see the light. I think that there is very much still a tunnel. Um, we are just starting to do vaccine trials in older children. So it is going to be some time before we have the data around vaccinating even these older children, but particularly our younger children who have not even uh, entered into these clinical trials. So. Um, you know, I think that that's important to remember. And then that kind of frames the fact that we're going to be dealing with this for a bit. I'm going to be nebulous when I use a bit. <laughs> um, and so I think it's important then, you know, even after we start getting the, this really good vaccination news, that we're still thinking about all of the things that we need to do to prevent the spread of COVID-19. You know, our understanding of this disease has grown immensely over the last couple of months. Every talk that I ever give, I always say, this information is only up to date as of right now, this very right. minute, and it will be promptly up to date tomorrow. It's kind of like getting a COVID-19 test. So yeah. when you're negative, you're only negative at that very exact moment. So I think that I would um, put all of my efforts towards continuing to talk to people about prevention strategies. And so that is going to, to look like a lot of different things. 
that's going to be vaccine education, right? So we know, hopefully, in the coming months, we will be able to vaccinate many high risk people. I don't know that that's going to be our children, unfortunately, but we know that we're going to have vaccine um, available for our high risk folks. People have a lot of questions about this vaccine. And I absolutely get this. We have never put together a vaccine this quickly. And so I know people are going to have questions about the safety. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be really important is providing that data that this vaccine was created in a safe manner with regulatory clinical trials and everything in place um, that are always there for all vaccine studies. But I think we need to be talking about that. You know, so I think that we need to be sharing information to put our community in a place where they have confidence in getting this vaccine. So I think that's one of the things. One of the other things um, that I think is going to be really important is going to be testing. And, you know, this has been going on since the beginning of the pandemic. We are able to test more people than we were before, but we're still not able to test everybody and with the frequency that we should be. And sure. so in the coming months, you know, people have talked about a number of test strategies. You know, one of the things that people have talked about is, you know, do you just get a home test and you're able to test yourself once every three days or even once every day? And that is going to really be able to help stop the spread. So I'm hopeful, I guess if I had all the money and science and education and technological <laughs> development in the world, you know, what I would really like to see is to be able to increase our testing um, so that we're really able to identify these infections as early as possible, isolate people as needed and stop the transmission. And then when they're recovered, get them back to doing the things that they need to be doing. So for children, that's, you know, going to school. And then, you know, I think too, one of the things that I would really like to see, and I am coming this from the perspective of a pediatrician, is children account for 25% of our population, and they don't have lobbyists, they don't have a voice in the government, they don't have people to advocate for them. And that's what our school leaders are doing, that's what our health department is doing, and that's what our hospital is doing. So I would, um, I think if I had all of the pie in the sky hope in the world is, I would like people to be thinking about the 25% of the population that can't advocate for themselves. Yeah, I, I very well spoken. And I, I really appreciate you saying that and just really highlights the type of quality individual you are, because I would have taken all the money and ran to Fiji, but you want to spend <laughs> it on kids. I may, I may, especially during the winter when it gets really cold. Sure. Uh, Dr. Schuster, I really genuinely want to thank you for your time, your dedication, your amazing expertise. Again, for those that are not aware, um, Children's Mercy in general has been over backwards to help school districts, but um, Dr. Schuster in particular has done that, and she has solved a lot of problems and given us a lot of solutions, and we're grateful for that. So thank you. And until we're on call next time together, please stay healthy. Mm -hmm.